Um, I wonder whether, um, maybe because of your Christian faith, um, your faith in Christ, wonder whether you've ever been accused of arrogance. Ever been accused of arrogance? That that happens sometimes, doesn't it? Um, someone might ask us about the the exclusive claims of Christianity. Um, f- for example, Jesus' exclusive claim when he says in, in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's about as exclusive a claim as you can get, really, isn't it? Jesus is saying that there are not many ways to God. You can't get to God through all religions, or, or in fact, as we might see later on, by any religions. There's only one way, and it's through him. And he's saying if you want to know the truth about God, don't t- turn to Richard Dawkins, <laughs> or don't turn to the Quran, or don't turn to the Talmud. There's only one truth about God, and it's only in Jesus. And if you want life, eternal life, that is, life forever, don't trust in religion, don't trust in good works or whatever. Trust in Jesus because life can be found only in him. That's an exclusive statement, isn't it? And, and you will probably know as well as I do that, that if you were to explain a verse like that to your mates at work, there's quite a high likelihood, I would guess, that you'll face the accusation of arrogance. In fact, if you're if you're here this morning, if you're watching online this morning, as somebody who isn't yet a follower of Jesus, you might be well thinking the same thing. Steve, that is uh, uh, an arrogant thing to say. In other words, although it's the, it's the clear, it's the unambiguous teaching of Jesus, it's been taught through the whole history of the church, it's an exclusive claim, isn't it? And, and said with such certainty that actually that really grates with the kind of the current views of our society doesn't it? So it attracts comments like, how can you say that? You know, that, that sounds arrogant and you Christians are supposed to be humble. Or you get comments like, well, how can you be so sure? You, you Christians always sound so certain, but, but how can you possibly know for sure? Our, our Western culture, I, th- I think, is one that when it comes to matters of faith, doesn't like exclusive claims to the truth and it doesn't like certainty. It just seems so, so intolerant, so, so arrogant. So are such people right? Can, can Christians have assurance or certainty about their faith, or is that simply arrogance? Well, I, th- I think what we'll see this morning as we, we continue our, our studies in the life of Abraham is that we can have assurance about our faith, uh, and that in fact assurance is God's gift to us. He wants us to be sure. And and what's more, to have that kind of certainty is actually not a sign of arrogance, but it's actually a sign of true humility. We'll we'll get to that. But we're going to see this here in in chapter 15 as, as God speaks his word to Abram in order to give him certainty. That's I think what's going on here. So I've got two headings uh, for us. Uh, Firstly, trusting in the word of God. And then secondly, trusting in the God of the word. So have a look. First of all, uh, we'll look at verses 1 to 6 and trusting in the word of God. Have a look at verse 1 there. First half of verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram 
in a vision. So, so verse 1 begins there, after these things, and, and the these things, of course, are the events of the previous chapter, aren't they? Which you might remember, if you were here a couple of weeks back, uh, were about this battle that, that Abram and his little army, do you remember, of, of 318 men, had just had against the might of, of the four uh, northern kings. And of course, God led Abram to victory there, didn't he? But you can imagine that this battle will have left Abram feeling very vulnerable, feeling very fearful and and anxious. I I mean, you know, uh, is this really the last that he can expect to see of of these guys? You know, can can Abram expect that these kings and and their massive armies are going to get frightened off by him now? Or or actually, are they going to want to regather and return? He's, he's going to be anxious, isn't he? But notice that in the face of Abram's fear, the first thing that happens is that the word of the Lord comes to Abram. So notice it's God who initiates this, God who reveals himself to Abram, and he does so by speaking to him. So it's a message of words from God, which in this instance come to him through a, a vision. But what effect does God's word have on Abram? Well, well, notice that in Abram's fear, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, Don't be afraid, Abram. I will be your shield and your reward will be great. Now, that may not be immediately apparent, but this is effectively another kind of reiteration of the promise of chapter 12, isn't it? You remember the promise of chapter 12, a promise of land and people and blessing? God's going to make a great nation from them. He's going to give them a land to inhabit. He's, he's going to bless them, and indeed, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through them. And, and it's a promise, as we saw last time, that's pointing forward, of course, to its, its ultimate fulfillment through Christ and, and a whole new world to come. And what's going on here is that after all the trauma of this battle and now Abram's anxiety about the future, God speaks his word to assure Abram of his promise that that what he said would happen will happen, so don't be afraid. I'll be your shield. I'll I'll protect you. I'll make sure you get your reward, the blessing you've been promised. I'll, I'll be your protector and your provider. You can trust me. You can bank your hope in my promises. But Abram's got questions, hasn't he? He, he does um, clearly take God's word to him here as a reference to that promise in chapter 12. But he wonders how God is going to achieve what he's promised. Verse 2, what will you give me? For, for I remain childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And, and uh, verse 3, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. Maybe you recognize Abram's kind of questions here. I, I, I don't think it's that Abram disbelieves God. He, he calls God Lord God or Sovereign God in verse 2. So, so he knows what God can do. It's just that he can't see how God is going to achieve what he promises. How am I going to be the father of a great nation that, that you're going to give a new land to and bless the world through? How are you going to do that if I don't even have a son? such that my only heir is my servant. (laughs) We saw the last time, didn't we, that that Abram lived just like we live, actually, in the the gap between the promise and the fulfillment. 
And, and here, God has made a promise about the future, but Abram can't see how God's going to fulfill his promise. He, he doesn't have an inch of land to his name. He, he's got these powerful kings around him. His prospects don't look good, and he doesn't even have a son. How on earth is he going to father a nation? He and Sarai are not exactly spring chickens. Um, even if they were, they've never been able to conceive. In fact, he's had to resort to making Eliezer, one of his servants, his heir. So God, how are you going to do this? How is this promise going to come to fulfillment with these massive obstacles in the way? Do you see? I, I don't think he's refusing to believe. He just wants a better understanding so that he can be more sure. Which is not a bad thing. Really is, it's quite a, quite a good thing. And, and so what does God do? Well, he gives him more of his word. He speaks to him further. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Do you see? God's word comes to him. And, and what does God say? What is his word to him? Verse 4. This man... Eliezer, in other words, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In other words, Abram, you don't need to make your servant your heir. I will do what I promised, and it will be through your own son. But, but notice God doesn't explain how he's going to do it. He's, he's not trying to make it easier for Abram to believe by giving him some kind of evidence. You know, actually... Abram, I've been planning this little miracle, you know, so soon you're going to have a son, don't worry, you know, I'll sort that, that little obstacle out for you. He doesn't say that to him, does he? He just reiterates the fact that he will do it. Uh, you'll notice in verse 5, he, he takes him outside and he says, look up at the heavens, Abram, and, and count those stars if you think you can. Well, I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as them. That's not evidence, is it? to make it easier to believe. <laughs> That's just restating the promise in, in even more incredible terms. He, he's effectively saying to him, this promise is even bigger. It's, it's even more unbelievable than you first thought, Abram. But I'm going to do it. So, wonder whether you can see what's happening here. Uh, we, we, we've been seeing how these, uh, these promises find their their ultimate fulfillment through Christ in, in the new creation that the, the whole storyline of the Bible is heading towards. Which means, of course, that, that's what, that what's going on here it is actually an example of what we all face in the Christian life today as well, isn't it? Because we live in the gap between the promise and, and its fulfillment. In other words, we know as, as, as Christians that God is going to complete what he started in these promises to Abram. We know that. And, and bring his people to, to the new and perfectly restored kingdom that he has for us, back under his rule and enjoying his, his blessing. We, we know he's promised it. We know he's sovereign. We know he'll do it. In, indeed, as, as New uh, Testament believers, we know that, that it's actually sin that stands in the way but that in Christ he's already done everything necessary to bring rescue from that. So I'd suggest, friends, that it's not that, that Christians doubt God's ability to finish what he started. It's just that while we live in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment, 
it's hard to hold on to the promises, isn't it? It's hard to hold on to them when we often see so few people coming to faith in Christ. It's hard to hold on to them when we see our nation rapidly abandoning its its Christian moorings. It's hard to hold on to them when we struggle with our own sinfulness as well. In other words, it's hard to hold on to the promises of God while still living in in a broken world, a world that itself is is in the gap between promise and fulfilment. Although we know that, that God is working to bring about what he promises, sometimes we can't see it. And so we often think, like Abram, well, how are you going to bring this about, Lord? When, when, when things are like this, how are you going to do it? And our search for answers in order to boost our assurance, they can often cause us to look in a variety of different places, can't they? Um, so some of us want to see extra signs, you know, or some extra experience. Some of us want to see some scientific answers to all those how questions that we, we have. So th- things that will make it easier for us to be sure about the future. But friends, what we see here is that when Abram comes to God with his questions, he's pointed back to God's word, to his promises, to, to what God says. Did you see? That's the solid basis on which our assurance stands. The fact that God has said it. See, it's God's word that brings certainty. It's God's word that we can depend on. God's solution to Abram's questions is to give him more of his word. Not answers to all the how questions, but just an expanded restatement of his promises, a, a kind of a bigger, deeper picture of what God will do. And it's, it's this that strengthens Abram's trust and and brings him assurance. Verse 6, look. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Which is a powerful verse, isn't it? It's, It's actually a verse that's quoted, you might know, several times in the New Testament, where it's applied to what it means to be a Christian. Uh, so, for example, in Galatians 3 and, and verses 1 to 4, or in Romans 4, uh, verses uh, 1 to 12, Abram is, is put forward as the model of how to be acceptable to God. And, and this verse here, verse 6, is quoted to show that Abram was, was not accepted by God because of anything special that he did, but simply because he, he believed, he had faith in what God believed, uh, in what God promised. And and so this verse, verse 6, it's one of the most important single verses in the Bible, I reckon. (laughs) Because it points to how sinful people can be put right with God. So what do we notice about it? Notice firstly that Abram believed. Okay, One of the things that you may have noticed about all religions every one that I'm aware of anyway, is that they all share one thing in common, which is that they're all about what people have to do in order to get right with God. 
So it, it might be through uh, religious observance, or it might be through uh, doing good works, good deeds, or it might be through law-keeping, or it might be through self-denial, or it might be through fasting, or it might be through wearing the right clothes, or it might be through pilgrimages to the, the right religious sites, or, or whatever. But the basic premise is that it's through the doing of certain things, the, the jumping through certain religious hoops, if you like, um, that, that, that means you can relate to God and, and get right with him. So so the religious life then becomes about doing certain things in the hope that by the time your time is up, you'll have done enough to be accepted by whoever the deity is. But friends, if that is what characterizes religion, then biblical Christianity is is not religion in that sense. In fact, if you like, it's the the (laughs) anti-religion. Because the message of the Bible is that no one is good enough for God. It doesn't matter how much good or, or how much religious stuff you do, you can never do enough to get right with God. God, God, is, God is perfect. And, and we, in our, our sin, we're, we're deeply, seriously flawed. If you like, the, the level of debt that we owe God because of our sin is, is way too big to be paid back with a bit of kind of religious hoop jumping or a bit of charity work or something. Now our sin puts us seriously in the red with God. And and nothing we can do puts us in the black uh, and makes us right with him. All religions will fail to do this. All attempts at good works will fail to do this. But friends, just see how Abram is our example of how we can get right with God. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Do you you see the the most fundamental principle about biblical Christianity is that it's not about what you do. It's about who you trust, who you believe. It's about trusting in the word of God. And that's what we see here, isn't it? Abram believed what God said. He agreed with God's word and he took him at his word and he trusted him. And friends, this is the essence of the Christian faith, really. God speaks to us through his word and our necessary response is to believe what God says. And then what happens? Well, God counted it to him or credited it to him as righteousness it's it's like an accounting term really isn't it what would i know i know nothing about accounting but but it's an accounting term um abram believed god and god credited righteousness to abram's account in other words he he made abram righteous in his sight by by transferring the righteousness into his account if you like So, so notice it's not accrued righteousness Right? It's not Abram's righteousness that he's managed to sort of build up in his account by being a good man or being a, a religious man. And, and now he's kind of accumulated enough of it to sort of cancel out the debt of his sin. It's not that, is it? it it's righteousness that's been transferred into Abram's account as a gift from God. Simply on the basis that he believed God. He trusted what God said. Do, do you see? In other words, this man Abram, who we saw last week, last time, sinned 
just like we do. Do you remember? He walked by sight instead of by faith, didn't he? He he feared people rather than God. It even caused him to give up his wife to another man. This sinful man is now counted by God as being righteous. In other words, as being without guilt, without fault, perfect. No no barrier to him being able to to relate to God. Nothing to answer for on on the day of judgment. Do, do, Do you see, friends? What makes people right with God? Well, it's when the word of God, what God says, is met with the response of faith or trust. That's what makes us right with God. And, and, and if you look, when, when, you, when you get home at those New Testament passages in Galatians 3 and uh, Romans 4, you'll see why Paul quotes this verse in both of those places. And it, it's to make the very point to those who are tempted to try and get right with God by some other means, apart from by faith in God's promises, in other words, through some form of good works or some form of religious practice. And because it's through faith in the promises of God that we're made righteous in his sight, to try some other means to get there instead, well, not only will it fail, it'll leaving us separated from, from God, in, in still in our sin, but actually it will lead us away from the true way of getting right with him. It, it'll leave us, in other words, deluded, you know, thinking that a bit of religion will do it, or that a bit of good works will do it. That, that'll be enough. Does that make sense? This is the big point, friends, that ought to be kind of you know, ringing in our ears as, as we leave this morning. It's the Word of God that creates trust in God and that leads to relationship with God and righteousness with God. Which means there is nothing more important for every person to do than to listen to what God says and respond to him in trust. Indeed, to do just that is enough for God to consider us righteous in his sight. And, And this is the very essence of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who listens to God's word and takes him at his word. Which, of course, friends, is why the the word of God is therefore central to the life of God's people, isn't it? You know, we, we don't spend all this time studying the Bible here at, here at Grace Church because that's our thing. But, but because listening to God speak so that we can respond to him in trust is the essence of biblical Christianity. And, and actually, sort of by way of, of application here, uh, I, I want to stress the word listen. <laughs> it's listening to, to what God says that leads to the required response of trust, isn't it? Um, maybe you remember these, right? Last week, family service, okay, my, my listening ears. I, I rummaged around in the, in the paper recycling bin to, to, to find these, my, my, my listening ears. And I put, thought I'd put them on again this week because, you know, um, that'll do. You get, you get the idea, don't you? Uh, because, friends, churches like ours, we rightly stress the need for good preaching. The good preaching of God's Word. But we don't often stress the vital need for good listening to God's Word. 
And of course, friends, we need both of those things, don't we, if we're going to respond to God in trust. Of course, it's great when we've got faithful Bible teachers in our churches who who teach God's word, but friends, that is next to useless unless we're actively, intentionally listening to God's word so that we can respond to him in trust. So uh, could I encourage us this morning not to simply want our preachers to preach well, but to want ourselves and to want each other to listen well. So it's, it's the Word of God that creates trust in God and leads to relationship with God through being made righteous in His sight. But it's also the Word of God that brings about certainty or, or assurance about God. So, so, so how does that work? Um, why should Abram here choose to trust God's Word instead of trusting what he thinks? You know, in, instead, and, and why should we? And, and, and the answer to that, of course, is to do with whose word it is. So, so, so we've looked at trusting in the word of God. Let's quickly now look at trusting in the God of the word in, in the remainder of the passage from, from verse 7. So, so, so yes, to be a believer you know, is to believe in, in the word of God, trusting the content of what God says, agreeing that his promises are true, But actually, more than that, to be a believer is to believe in the God of the Word. In other words, trusting in the person of God himself. We we trust in the promises of God because we trust in God himself. And we do that because God is trustworthy. I want you to notice that this this second section from verse 7, it it starts, just like the first section did, with God's Word coming to Abram, verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So God speaks to him, which of course is an invitation for Abram to trust God and, and so deepen his relationship with God. But again, do you notice Abram's got questions? Verse 8, he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You know, how, how can I have assurance or, or certainty that, that you'll do this? And, and again, we're not told that, that Abram was wrong to ask the question. It's not a failure to trust. He just wants a deeper understanding. So God speaks again. And, and actually, in the... Um, I'll carry on. Um, <laughs> God speaks again. <laughs> not like that but with, with words <laughs> and, and, and in the remaining verses actually from, from there through to the end of the chapter we see, we see what God says together with a kind of a um, kind of a visual aid to back up what he says and it, and it has to be said <laughs> seems a bit of a weird visual aid to us doesn't it did, did you read those verses and kind of wince a bit it's all about hacking up animals in the dead of night it's all a bit strange um, but but actually it's not strange to Abram because what he's getting him to do is to perform a, a ritual and, and it's a ritual that, that in the ancient world uh, symbolized a covenant agreement. So an, an, an unbreakable promise between two parties. It would often be two kings or, or, or two nations. 
And, and the idea was that one party, kind of one party agreed to do this, and, and then the other party agreed to do that, and, and may both parties who, who enter into this agreement uh, face the curse of the covenant and, and be torn apart like these animals if they break the covenant. And, and then the two parties would walk through the, the cut-up animals as a sign of their solemn agreement. Do, do, do you see? That's what's going on here. Uh, and so although it looks weird to us, nevertheless, Abram knew what it was all about because, you see, in verse 10, he cuts up the larger animals, he leaves the smaller ones, verse 10. He knows what to do. This is a good visual aid for him. But, but the thing to notice here is that this covenant is one-sided. So yes, Abram sets up the animals like he's told, but notice in verse 12 that Abram falls into a deep sleep and dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, which is supposed to signify uh, God's sort of awe-inspiring, holy presence whilst Abram's asleep. And and verse 17, you've got this this smoking pot and flaming torch which passes between the cut-up animals. And in the Old Testament, kind of smoke and fire are are again symbolic of God's presence. So, So you don't have both parties walking among the animals, making the covenant or cutting the covenant, as as it was called. Um, uh, uh, you don't have both Abram and God signifying may they be cursed if they, if they break the agreement. No, you've got God doing it while Abram sleeps. Do, do, do you see? This is God's initiative. This is his unconditional covenant. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So, yeah, some of the details are a, a bit obscure and a bit gruesome. But we can get the gist of what's going on here, can't we? God is instigating a covenant with Abram. And, and in the middle of this rather sort of graphic visual aid, God speaks. And notice what he speaks about. Firstly, verse 13, he speaks about the future. Then the Lord God said to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you will go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. In other words, God's promise, land and people and blessing and so on, it's going to take time, God's God's plan and purpose to to work out his promise to Abram over the next 400 years or so of history. You can probably see the pointer there, can you? Towards Israel's slavery in Egypt, 400 years, followed by Exodus from Egypt with great possessions in verse 14. But notice also that God speaks about the certainty of his promise. So he speaks the promise. This is what God will do. Verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, 
Oh, okay. We've got a problem with the mic. Uh, please note there's a um, brief problem with the recording at this point. Um, apologies for that. and cut up like these animals if I do not. I wonder, wonder if you can see the, the force of that, friends. Can God be trusted to fulfil his promise? Can we be certain? Well, God promises on his own life that he will fulfil his promise. May I face the curse of the covenant and be cut up like these animals if I am not faithful. That's what God's saying here. How, how much more certain of anything could we be than in the word of God? Do, do, do you see? God shows Abram the future and he shows him the certainty of that future. But, but notice also at the, at the same words in, in the context of the visual aid give us a little hint of how that future will be fulfilled. You see, the, the, the question that must have plagued Abram and, and, and his descendants after him is, well, how is God going to fulfill that promise? How is he going to keep that covenant when people in, in their sin keep breaking the covenant? And, and, and so deserve the curse of the covenant actually falling on them. How is God going to do that? And, you know, it seems to me that if we look at these verses with our, our kind of our New Testament glasses on, we, we see that actually God has faced the curse of the covenant. He, he has been cut up like those animals in the illustration. Isn't that exactly what happened to God in the person of Jesus? And, and, and not, of course, because he has broken his word to us, but because we, in our sin, keep breaking our word to him. This, this is what Paul writes in Galatians 3, isn't it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see, friends? God says, I would rather die and be cut up like these animals than break my promise to you. And that's exactly what he did do when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Taking the curse that should have been ours upon himself, so that he could keep his promise to us and give us the blessings of Abraham through faith in him. So, friends, can we be sure? Can we be certain about what God says? Or, or is it just arrogance? Well, friends, the testimony of God's word from beginning to end, and you see it powerfully here, is that no matter what, God will keep his promise. He has said, I'd, I'd rather die than not keep the promises of my word. And in fact, because of our sin, die he has in order to keep it. 
So, so while, while others may want to call us arrogant, I, I can't think of anything more comforting to know for myself and to share with others than the glorious truth that, that as Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. Friends, there's nothing as certain as the word of God. Nothing. I could try trusting in good works for my future or religious observance or I could just wait and hope for the best. But none of those things are are anywhere near as trustworthy and certain as the word of God. And friends, this should not lead us to arrogance, but to real humility. Because for the Christian... To be certain about our future, to be certain, or it is to be certain, about what Christ has done for me on the cross. So it's not certainty in something I've done, you know, that would be arrogance. But it's certainty about what God has done for me on the cross. And because I'm certain that it all rests on what he has done, well then I'm certain that I've got nothing to be prideful or arrogant about, nothing to boast about, because he has done it all for me and he's credited it to me as a gift of his grace. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you so much that it's the, it's the word of God that creates trust in God that leads to relationship with God and certainty about God thank you that you want us to be sure and we can be sure because there is nothing more trustworthy and certain than your word so please would you lead us to saving trust and to greater assurance we pray and we pray in Jesus name Amen.